Uh, as they're going, if you would turn to Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3, uh, we'll be in verses 6 through 10. Zechariah 3, <clears throat> verses 6 through 10. <coughs> This is the word of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my branch, for behold, on the stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Grace and obedience. These are Two things that at times can be hard for us to balance. The grace of God and our response in obedience. Grace is a wonderful thing. It is perhaps the greatest gift that we've ever been given. And countless uh, poems and songs have been written and sung about it. We think of amazing grace The wonderful grace of Jesus. Wonderful grace. Grace that will cover all of our sins. It is given to us freely. And it is a wonderful and great thing. It's something we don't earn. It is the definition of our salvation. one hand we have grace but on the other hand we have obedience and obedience is no less important we are continually in the christian life fighting who we are and who we are supposed to be paul tells us that we are to continue the struggle but we are not to sin So that grace may abound all the more. He says, may it never be. We can't just keep sinning so that we can say, hey, God is gracious. He's gracious. No. So how do we balance grace and obedience? How are we to reconcile these two things? This is, in a theological term, the difference between justification and sanctification. And we might get scared by these words, these theological words, but they're, in a way, very simple to understand. Justification, how are we made just? How are we made right? And sanctification, how are we made sanctified 
or holy. How are we made holy? So one has to do with how we're made just, and the other has to do with how we're made holy. Our confession gives them a little bit more wordy definitions. Justification, uh, listen to this, is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and makes us right in his sight. Who does the justifying? It's not us. It's Jesus. It's his act. While sanctification is a work, it's something that's ongoing where he's enabling us to die to sin and to live as Christ is something that's ongoing. We see here the picture of grace and obedience, these two things that are going on at the same time. It's how we're made just and how we're made holy. R.C. Sproul says this, if, re- excuse me, if regeneration is real, It will always ever yield faith. If faith is genuine, it will always ever yield justification. If our justification is authentic, it will always and ever yield sanctification. There can be no true justification without real sanctification. When God makes us right... When he reconciles, when Jesus, I should say, reconciles us to God, apart from our own works, our lives must change. Zechariah in this chapter is trying to help us understand the difference between justification and sanctification, between grace and obedience. Last week we talked about how Joshua, the high priest, was standing there. He was covered in this filthy, dung-soaked clothing, just grossness. And Jesus comes, the angel of the Lord, that is Jesus, comes and removes his clothes, this filthiness, and puts on him these white garments. And that is his justification. He has been delivered from his sin. Joshua does nothing. He's the recipient of this gift gift Christ has accomplished it for him but now today we see how is he to respond he has been given this great and precious gift but now he must respond to it and how is he going to do that and so this is what our text will show us today I want us to see three things as we consider the Christian life First, I want us to consider the call of the Christian life. Second, we'll consider the object of the Christian life. And third and finally, we'll consider the promise of the Christian life. The call, the object, and the promise of the Christian life. Joshua now has been justified. He has been made clean. As we said, he uh, did not do this on his own. But now he must begin living before the God who has justified him. How is he going to do this? How uh, is his sanctification uh, going to be played out? He is charged here then. He is commanded to do two things. He is to walk in God's ways and keep his charge. The word here is charge. Uh, It is 
maybe better or more understandably uh, translated as ordinances. Keep my ordinances, keep my laws. This is personal godliness. He says, you have to walk in my ways. You have to keep my laws. And specifically for Joshua, who was he? He was the high priest. And this meant ministry. He was to faithfully minister in the way God had commanded him to. And Joshua, and he includes all his fellow priests in this, in our text, he says, you must keep my ordinances. And if you do this, then I will bless you. Ministers, for that's what they were, they were the Old Testament ministers, must be faithful on a personal and professional, as it were, level. He was speaking both to Joshua as an individual, as a man, but he was also speaking to his corporate responsibility. John Calvin says it this way, in short, pastors or priests divinely appointed are so to rule over the church as to not exercise their own power, but to govern the church according to what God has prescribed. And in such a manner that God himself may always rule through the instrument, or excuse me, through the instrumentality of men. Ministers are to live a certain way, but this does not only apply to ministers, but all those who administer in the kingdom of God. Now, who does that include? All of us, right? Any of those who call on the name of the Lord, who minister in his kingdom, must submit to him in this way. There is a condition by which you are to walk before your God and keep his word. We are to exercise, which is a great word, isn't it? Exercise. Uh, We think exercise can at times be a dirty word. I know it is for me. Uh, It's a dirty word. It's not something we like to do. But we also tend to only apply that word, in a sense, to physical exercise. It's not merely physical exercise. There are many disciplines in our life that we are to work at. We are to exercise what he has taught us to do. We are to walk before him in this way. So we exercise our faith on both a personal and a corporate level. We must be faithful to all that he has revealed to us in his word. Every last jot, every last word, we must be faithful to it. We must be obedient to it. And with obedience comes reward. Jesus tells him here, if you are faithful, if you keep my commandments, if you walk in my ways, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. In essence, he gives him two promises. He says, first and foremost, the temple will be rebuilt. You will work in my temple. But there's another future promise here. He says, you'll have access, the same access as those who stand here. Now, who are the those that are standing here? Well, if you remember, there's only... Basically, three, two people and a group of people that are, are there. They're not really people. We have Joshua, we have Zechariah, and we have angels. He says, you will have the same access as these angels here. This is a future promise that he is giving to them. 
They will be given access to the heavenly courts of God. They will be able to serve, even in the place that the angels serve. This is access to God's throne. Brothers and sisters, salvation, the grace that you have been given, is a wonderful thing. As we consider it, it should floor us. You were dead. There was nothing you could do, and you have been made alive. You have new clothes. You are no longer filthy. They have been removed. But with that free gift, the gift you do nothing to receive, comes a responsibility. You now must Live faithfully before him. You cannot live as if your clothes have not been changed and continue to wallow in the muck and the mire and the filth and the disgustingness of this world. The Christian life must look a certain way and it doesn't look the way the world looks. The Christian life must be our priority over all else. That's an easy thing to say, right? The Christian life is that priority over everything else. Everything else. That's a hard thing to own, isn't it? That we who have been called by faith, who have been purchased, freely given, grace through the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ, are called to forsake all else for the sake of personal holiness. That is daunting. That means for us that our personal holiness is more important than work. It means that our personal holiness is more important than our family. It means our personal holiness is more, in, is more important than our school than anything that we do, any recreation or anything else. But not only our personal holiness, but our corporate holiness. Now, if I were sitting where you were sitting, this is what I would be thinking about what I am saying. So I'm now going to critique myself. You're being overly dramatic. Certainly... What you're, the implication of what you're saying is not practical. It's not practical. There are too many things that are calling and vying for my attention that are good and right. And that's true, isn't it? The same feelings that balk in me, or balk in you, balk in me. That say, no, th- this is only true to an extent. But then I'm forced to ask myself, and I would encourage you to ask yourself, what is it that you believe about your God? What do you believe about your God? This morning, we had uh, several people come forward for membership, but if you're a member at this church, you at some point have answered yes to these questions. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? And without hope save his sovereign mercy. You're coming and saying, I deserve God's wrath, his displeasure. Aside from his grace, 
I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners. And I receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. He is the only place that I can receive the salvation, the only place that I can be justified. And do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance on the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will live, that you will endeavor to live as become a follower of Christ? You're acknowledging the fact that you are relying on him to follow after him and live as he would have you live. Submitting yourself all the while to the church, to its purity, to its peace, to its work, to its government, to its discipline, all the other things that come with those last two questions. But you're surrendering the whole of your life to him, making him the priority. Are we doing that? Or are we living different than our profession? Are we living differently than we profess? I think this is one of the hardest single thing that all of us will struggle with on a day-to-day basis. Now, the specifics of how we struggle with this are going to be varied and many and different. But are you living out your profession? In such a way that the watching world looks at you and says, I see you living out your profession. That those around you see you living out your profession or do your actions give them pause. Well, I know they say this, but they're doing this. It's a question we all have to ask ourselves. Are we being sanctified the way he has called us to be sanctified? Are we living in obedience to the God who has sought us and bought us? Who is this God? Who is this one who has purchased us? This is our second point point the object of the Christian life my sermon title somewhat it wasn't very funny I tried to be funny it wasn't very funny Uh, rock paper servant comes from this next section Uh, Jesus here is called three things he's called a servant he's called a branch that's where I got the paper from by the way if you're wondering and he's called a rock I hate sermon titles sometimes they hit sometimes they miss just leave it as it is Rock, paper, servant, God is, Jesus is three things. The priests are types. He straight up says this to them. You're just a picture of something that is to come. A fallen picture at that. Joshua is a great picture of this as an individual. He is one who had his filthiness removed and he had Christ's righteousness put on him. And then what was his job from that point forward? As the high priest, it was to be the representative of the people bringing the same forgiveness of sins through the sacrifices of the Old Testament. But he's pointing forward, one, you're just a type, you're an imperfect type. There's one who's coming who will be a servant, who will be a branch, who will be a stone. And these are all Old Testament descriptions of the Messiah. First we see he's God's servant. 
the one who will finally establish God's righteousness in its fullness on this earth. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant. He is coming. He is the servant of the king. The New Testament applies, continually applies this idea of servant to Jesus Christ. He is the saving servant. He establishes God's rule. He dies for our sins. He comes and he serves us. He comes as the branch. Again, another messianic title we see in both Isaiah and Jeremiah. Isaiah 11.1, there shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This branch will rise from relative obscurity. He will achieve the fullness of salvation. He will bring restoration to God's people and he will bring glory to God. Jeremiah likewise in Jeremiah 23 says this, behold, the days are coming declares the Lord when I will raise up a, for David, a righteous branch And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And in the name, and this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is what Jeremiah tells us. God is sending a branch. He will reign on David's throne. Jesus, who came from lowly beginnings, who was born in a manger, who was born in poverty and weakness, who died on the cross, yet rose to the right hand of God. He is this branch, this offshoot of the Davidic king. But thirdly and finally, he tells us he he will be a stone. A stone that I have set before Joshua. On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription. The stone, in a way, can be probably the hardest of the three to interpret. Um, It was set before Joshua, so it was a very large stone. It wasn't a a gem for a breastplate or a crown. Uh, If we consider for a moment what Zechariah is all about, We remember that Zechariah is talking about rebuilding the temple. And then we go to Isaiah 28 and we see, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. This stone again is Jesus Christ. But we see that this stone has two descriptors. He has, it'll have seven eyes. Well, what is this talking about? Uh, Perhaps this is God's watching care or the Holy Spirit resting on whom, who God will send out. But I think what we do know, if, if nothing else, is that seven is always a number of completion. It's complete. It's whole. Uh, as, as scripture talks about, the seven and ten are numbers of completion. He perfectly watches over his people. And what did Jesus as the stone have engraved on him? I think this is a literal engraving. Not words, not pictures. But scars, but wounds that were engraven, engraved to his flesh. One commentator says it this way 
Beautiful were the gifts and graces which Christ received as man. But beautiful beyond beauty must be those glorious scars which he allowed his whole body to be riven, that throughout the whole frame his love might be engraved. His love for us was literally engraved to his flesh. This is how much he loves us. He is a branch. He is king. He is a stone. He is our priest. We see here two of the three offices of Christ. We know that he is prophet. He is priest. He is king. And through two of these, we see his priest and he is king. He is the perfect sacrifice for us. Joshua and the priest are promised the things that you're doing, the things that you're going to do from day to day, they are just glimpses into what will be accomplished in Jesus Christ. But your works are not in vain. They will be consummated. They will come to a conclusion. Jesus Christ will be the single sacrifice for your sins. And that's what we now receive. Why are we going to live towards holiness? What is the object of our holiness? It is nothing less than Jesus Christ, his example, his life. He is to be our guide, our our example, the thing, the person, the object by which we model the whole of our Christian life. And brothers and sisters, he left nothing back. He gave all. Jesus gave all. He paid it all. And what does the hymn respond in that? All to him I owe. We owe all to him. Our life is to be mirror, a mirror of this. Do you live as if you owe all to him? Is the whole of your life patterned after him? It is a hard question, I believe, to answer. But if, if we live in holiness, this passage ends with two promises for us. At the end of chapter, or excuse me, of verse 9, he says, And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. This promise has already happened for us, hasn't it? He has removed the iniquity of this land in a single day. We look to Good Friday in one sense, this most terrible of days, and in another real sense, the most glorious day that ever could occur for us. For there we received the fulfillment of this promise. I will remove the iniquity, the punishment of this land in a single day. Day, Jesus has done this for us. He has justified us. He has made us right before God. But the second promise is this. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The second speaks of peace. 
among the people. We will live with our neighbor in peace. The promise still awaits us. We know that we do not live with everyone in peace. It'll it'll come to its fulfillment when Christ returns in glory. But this is already true for those who call upon the name of the Lord, isn't it? We are called as a church to live in peace as those who are joined by a common faith. We dwell in the blessings offered by God as we trust in Christ for our sanctification. We must also trust and rest in him for our sanctification. How can we do this? How can we do this? Because even as I consider my own life and my own failings and my own ways in which I'm even putting my job as pastor before my own personal holiness, that seems an odd thing to say, doesn't it? But can't we even wrap ourselves in self-righteousness? How can we do this? We have to understand that we cannot do it on our own. We cannot have one without the other. That's the beautiful thing here that every command and requirement that is given in our text is preceded by an act of God's grace and a promise of salvation. And isn't this true of all of scripture? How do we love? We love because what? He first loved us. We don't love because we're good and in ourselves we can do it. No, we love because he loves us. We live in holiness because he first cleansed us. We serve because he served. We obey because Jesus obeyed. He is the reason that we can do any of it. This vision that Zechariah is having points us, it directs us. To the greater Joshua, the greater high priest that is to come. Our salvation. Brothers and sisters, hear me. Our salvation does not in the least bit depend upon our own faithfulness. It simply doesn't. And isn't that beautiful? You can't do anything great enough, good enough, special enough, holy or pure enough to make God love you more, to make yourself earn his justification. God has sent his son to do that for us. And it is through him that we have forgiveness. And it is through him that, through him that we will receive the blessings to come. But in the meantime, we are called to live the Christian life. We are called to be holy. Has he asked too much of us? Has he asked too much of us? Sometimes I feel like practically that's how we live. You can have so much. You can have to this point. Or we say something like this. This is uh, something I know that I've used in my life. Well, I know what your scripture says, and I know that that's what's right, but the world will not allow me to. So we think, well, 
I have to do this on this day. I have to work on that day. I have to go here on that day because the world is telling me I have to. And we do not take a stand and say, this is the truth upon which I will rest and make the basis of my holiness. We allow the world to dictate. I know I do this in my own life. I can't say this, I can't say that because the world will rebuke me for it. But Zechariah tells us you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has made you a new creation. You are now to live your life as if you have been restored. As if you are following after him. You are holy. You are being made holy each and every day. And you must understand who and what you are. You must understand who your Savior is. That he is indeed the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who has bought you out of bondage and given you life. He has fulfilled every promise that was given. He has made us right before God. Therefore, Therefore, we must live rightly before him. And as we do so, we remember that we have been renewed. And we anxiously look forward to to the day when he returns, when all the world will live together in peace, as he restores all things. I don't know about for you, but for me, Zechariah has been... A wonderful study as I get to sit each week and look at this. And we oftentimes think Old Testament, that's not about Jesus. But it is all about Jesus. It's all about what he's done for us. And he reminds us, you are to live a certain way because you're mine. You're mine. I own you is basically what he says to us. You've called upon me. You're resting in me. I own you. Now live faithfully. As my servant. Brothers and sisters, would we live faithfully as servants of our King? Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ. Lord, would we, even when it's hard, live faithfully in service to our King, becoming more like him, more holy each and every day. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.